Luke chapter 21, starting reading in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what your son said to his disciples, and what Luke has recorded for the benefit of Theophilus, what your spirit has superintended for the benefit of your church, pray that as we look at it, you would turn on the lights, that we would understand your word, that we would rejoice in your word. Even as we look at this difficult text, Father, and consider the way many have struggled through it and understanding it, that we would know we can be confident in your word, that your son is our king and his word endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the text before us today, most specifically verses 25 through 33, is one of those texts that the the more I study, the richer it gets for me. And the richer it gets, the more difficult it becomes to figure out how to preach it. The challenge I run into in preaching a text like this is really figuring out what to cut and what to keep. So I'll study hours, weeks, days, months on this kind of a text. I will sit there and compare the Greek and think about all the hermeneutic principles and all this nerdy stuff you don't care about. But I'll do all this stuff, and then as I'm doing all that and studying it and trying to figure it out, okay, now what do I preach? As I'm doing all of that, I'm going through the very painful process of saying, what do I cut? What do I keep? What do I cut? What do I keep? And you might decide when you've heard this sermon that I kept too much. I I spend the majority of my time studying the text of Scripture, and, and this is in life, and figuring out how to preach it because I'm commissioned primarily by the Lord to do one task, which is to preach the Word. As a pastor, the Lord hasn't first called me to organize programs or provide therapy or be an organizational executive. The Lord has called me to preach his word. He hasn't called me to be a great philosopher or sociologist or psychologist. He has called me to teach the Bible. He hasn't called me to be a great entertainer or a great orator. Pressure feels off there, right? Or a great creator of topical series that I believe have life application for you. He has called me to exposit his word. Why why is that? Why why am I to preach the word? 
Why are all pastors called to be preachers, expositors, teachers of the Bible? We are because God's Word is breathed out by Him. It is Spirit-inspired, and it is sufficient to teach and rebuke and correct and train in righteousness. The Word of God never returns void. It never fails to accomplish its work. The Word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place. It is the surest of foundations. Flesh may fail. The creation will pass away, but the Word will endure forever. Therefore, I have one job, one ultimate calling, and one book I'm supposed to know and teach. My job is to know and teach the Bible. Jesus is my king. And as my king, he gave me a decree. And as his ambassador, my job is to make known the decree of the king. I say all this because sadly too few people trust the word of God anymore. I've heard pastors say that they cut their sermons short and that they leave out difficult texts, like the one I'm using this morning, and they restrain themselves even to short series like four to six weeks because they don't believe the congregation has the mental capacity or attention span to handle more. They've said that to me. First, that ought to be insulting to every person who sits in the church. The elitism inherent in that idea that you're all just too dumb and immature to even have the attention span and ability to chew on the difficult teaching that I'm participating in is pretty sad, isn't it? It's pretty arrogant. Second, they're concerned that you will be bored with texts of Scripture, may say more about their personal time in the Word of God than it does about their audience. Third, the sheer arrogance and pride to think that they know something the Holy Spirit isn't privy to is stunning. It's as if they're saying, see, I know Jesus is the head of the church, and I know that as the head of the church, he sent a spirit to superintend the writing of this long and at times challenging book, but he just doesn't understand what people need like I do. There's a famine in the land because pastors and congregations are not sufficiently committed to the fact that Jesus is king and his word is supreme and unfading and never failing. So what does this have to do with our text today? Am I just on a hobby horse? No, this has everything to do with our text today. Everything. I bring this up because I believe that our text today is clear that Jesus believed he is the divine and Davidic king, the king of kings, And his dominion is over all, thus his word is eternal and supreme. If you remember where we have been in our study, Jesus had prophesied to his disciples that judgment was coming against ethnic Israel for her rejection of God's promise, and most specifically for her rejection of God's Messiah. He prophesied that this judgment would come upon them in a localized destruction of Jerusalem, in the tearing down of the temple, and of the scattering of ethnic Jews to all nations. All of this would come because they rejected God's word of salvation, God's prophets who brought that word, the word incarnate, Jesus himself, and the apostles who preached the same word as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And we saw last week that this judgment did come against Jerusalem under General Titus in the Roman Empire in A.D. 70. Jesus and the apostles had experienced great persecution at the hands of ethnic Jews who had rejected Jesus, and now God's judgment was coming against them for their sin. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. Over one million people were slaughtered. Another 100,000 people were sold into slavery. And the rest of the ethnic Jews participated in what historians called the diaspora as they spread throughout the nations of the known world. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his judgment, and in verse 25... We're given this connecting word. Look there, verse 25, this word, and. This, is, this word, and, is such an ambiguous connection to connect all that he's talked about in verse 20 through 24, this destruction of Jerusalem the temple, and what follows. It's so ambiguous that scholars have struggled and debated the relationship between what follows the and and what comes before the and. 
in the text. So here's what I want to do this morning as we look at the text. First, I want to provide you with two main perspectives of this text. Okay, I'm going to give you the two main perspectives. There are lots of nuanced positions within these two main perspectives, but I essentially want to give you the two main perspectives or the broader brushes of it. And, and I'll let you know which position I, I tend to hold to. Second, I want to look at what all evangelical scholars agree on. All of them agree on, even as they disagree with each other as to their perspective on this text. What's the real point of the text for the apostles? What do God's people today need to understand? The scholars pretty much agree on that. They disagree, though, on how this text falls out. And so I want to start with the two perspectives, and then I want to tell you what the main point is. So here are the two perspectives. The first one, and I'm going to break these down for you a little bit more, but the first, main, the first perspective is what they call the futurist perspective. In other words, this text, verse 25 through and, well, and following, is all about the future return of Christ. That when you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, etc., etc., that that's all talking about the future coming or the second coming of Christ. That's one major perspective. In fact, I would say it's the majority perspective among most evangelical scholars. The second perspective is what's called the partial preterist perspective. What? That's a strange word, right? Full preterism is the idea that Jesus already returned. That's heresy. Partial preterism is just a reference to the idea that this text isn't actually talking about the second coming of Christ. This text is talking about something else that already happened. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so future. This is talking about the future, second coming of Christ. This is talking about something other than the coming of Christ that already occurred. Those are the two perspectives. You guys follow me on that? So if you will, future and past perspectives. But what's the main point of the text that everybody agrees to? The main point is that Jesus is telling his disciples that he is the Davidic king. The Danielic son of man who's coming in the clouds in judgment. And they should believe what he says because as the divine king of, king, his, king of kings, his word is always true. So let's take on the first task about the two perspectives Let me start with the futurist view. You guys ready? The futurist view. How do futurists see this passage? I want to deal with it because it's the most popular view, um, and it's the most popular view even among scholars who I respect the most. And They call it the futurist view. It's like this passage, what they're saying is this relationship of this word and, you see that? And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars that suddenly what's happened between verses 20 through 24 and now as you get to verse 25, that word and, suddenly he's jumped from something happening in the past to something happening in the future. You guys follow me on that? It's what they call a prophetic perspective. In other words, Jesus is speaking with kind of prophetic perspective. He's taking a near event that's happening and as he looks at that near event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple, as he sees that, it's so indicative of a future event that what he does is he just kind of smashes those two events together. This happens throughout the Old Testament. Happens throughout the Old Testament in the prophets. As the prophets look at, for example, the judgment of Babylon, when Isaiah talks about the judgment of Babylon, he also talks about the great day of the Lord. He sort of sees this judgment of Babylon, and he says, that's so indicative of the future judgment of the Lord, I'm just going to smash those two things together. You guys follow me on that? It's called prophetic perspective. It's a way that they talk apocalyptically. It's like when you look through a telescope. They telescope this stuff. You ever look through a telescope? All of a sudden, far things seem near. And so what they're saying is that what Jesus is doing is he's speaking like an Old Testament prophet. And he's using this and to kind of smash these two events together. One event being the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The other event being the future return of Christ. The Old Testament prophets often do this. And Jesus does this as well. The question is, is that what Jesus is doing here? You see, the question isn't, does Jesus ever do that? Or do the apostles ever do that? The question is, in this text, is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus seeing the destruction of Jerusalem as indicative of the future judgment of the world when he returns, and thus he just kind of takes this word and and smashes those two things together? Is there any evidence of the futurist view? 
I think there is. So I want to walk through it. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Keep your hand there in Luke 21. And look at Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, in the first two verses, he's laid out the fact that that the disciples are going to see the temple destroyed. And the disciples, as they hear Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, they come and ask him a question, if you look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when all these things will be. What are all these things? He's talking about the destruction of the temple, the judgment of Jerusalem. When will all these things be? Now look at what the disciples do next, though. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? In other words, the disciples automatically make the assumption that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is also the end of all things in the second coming of Christ. You guys follow that? They're making that connection. They seem to expect that Jesus' return and the end of all things and the destruction of the temple are related. And because the disciples expected that, it's entirely possible that Jesus expected the same. Now, now continue further. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 26. After Jesus talks about all this kind of persecution is going to come, this destruction of Jerusalem that's going to happen, the earthquakes, the death of people, all these things are going to occur. In verse 26, Jesus says this, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. In other words, if they start telling you Jesus that I've already come back, don't believe them. You're going to see all this destruction of Jerusalem. They start telling you, I've already come. Don't believe them. Don't follow them. They're false prophets. And then he goes on and says this, verse 27, about his second coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a very pleasant imagery. But the idea is, there won't be any mystery about it when I return. People are going to come to you and say, oh, Jesus already came. And he's just saying to them, listen, let's, let's be clear. You're going to see this across the world. It's going to be clear when I come. My judgment's going to happen. No one's going to wonder if I'm judging anybody because where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So he warns the disciples that these events in, when these events in Jerusalem happen, and when the troubles that precede these events happen, then people will claim that Jesus has come. And Jesus tells them not to believe that report. It certainly won't be a secret. It'll be known throughout the world. Further, look at Matthew twenty four thirty. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, all the tribes on the earth are mourning, and verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, this imagery that's paralleled in Luke sure sounds like the second coming of Christ, doesn't it? The judgment, the end of all things. It sure sounds that way. It sure sounds like God is gathering his elect from throughout the earth at the end of all things. Now let's go back to Luke 21, and I want to look at the parallel imagery there. Continue to consider this perspective. Verse 25, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, this describes a fairly significant cosmic disturbance, and it does so in language that's also used in passages, for example, in the book of Revelation, that clearly are talking about the future return of Jesus and the end of all things. Look at Luke twenty-one twenty-seven now. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now the text flat out says we, they will see the Son of Man coming in a power with the clouds and power and great glory. And clearly no one has seen that physically yet, have they? And this sounds like his return given that throughout the Old Testament 
Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, comes with the clouds. Clearly, though, no one has seen him come with the clouds yet, have they? Physically. Now look at verse 28 of Luke 21. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. Now Romans 8, when it talks about our near redemption, it says that the Son of God and all creation with us are waiting for our redemption, which is clearly in Romans 8, speaking of the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. So you can see that there are clearly compelling reasons to hold to the futurist view. You guys see that? These aren't even close to all of them. There's some of them. Probably the most compelling reasons to hold the futurist view. Now, so what's the partial preterist view and what is wrong with those guys? Let's, let's look at the partial preterist view. That's the view that, that these events all actually were fulfilled by A.D. 70. Partial preterists, now, they, this view is historical or past, they don't believe Jesus' second coming has happened. They just don't think these verses are talking about a second coming. They think his second coming is going to be in the future. It's just not being discussed here. Now, I know that sounds crazy and probably implausible given what I've said so far. So why do many respected scholars whom I could name take this view? Many respected scholars take this view. Why? Let's look at the passage again. Look at Luke 21. 25 through 26. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, this word and, as I said, is ambiguous, but somehow it ties what comes before with what comes after. Somehow. So somehow, this is all tied up with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The question is, is it taking a future event and smashing it together with a past event? Or is it saying something about that past event itself? In fact, Matthew actually ties this passage with the destruction of the temple directly. So look at Matthew 24 again. Keep your hand there. We're going to keep coming back and forth here. Matthew 24 and look at verse 29. Because I want you to see Matthew's direct tie between the destruction of Jerusalem and the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, what are those days? Those days are the days we've just been talking about. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the earthquakes, the being brought before synagogues and prosecuted and tried, etc., etc., etc. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So there's a clear reference here to the tribulation of those days and what Matthew does is different than Luke is Matthew, instead of just putting like Luke just says, and. Here's this and this. What Matthew does is different is he says, here's the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that I talked about, and immediately after the tribulation of those days. So what they're saying is, it seems to be the most natural reading that what happens in verse 25 through 28 of Luke 21 immediately follows verse 20 through 24 of Luke 21. Not that it's some future event. But we need to go on because that's certainly not convincing. Turn back to Luke 21. Now, as I've read Luke 21, 25 multiple times, you see there's sun and moon and stars. And if you remember in Matthew 24 in the parallel passage that says the moon will not give its light, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from heaven. Those are pretty cataclysmic, cosmic kind of things, aren't they? That kind of language is judgment language throughout Scripture. It's true that this language is used regarding the end of all things. This kind of language, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the sky, are all used of end times judgment. However, this same language, cosmic language, is used of local judgments of particular nations. Did you know that? 
to use the local judges of particular language, or nations, look at, if you will, keep your hand in Luke 21 and go to Isaiah 13. I want you to see the way this language is used. The sun going out, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the heavens with regard to judgment. Look at Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Okay, so here's a prophecy concerning Babylon. Babylon is a nation led by Nebuchadnezzar. They had swept in and conquered Jerusalem and Israel in about 605 B.C., and they continued in power until about 537 B.C. So from about 605 B.C. to 537 B.C., right in that range, 538 B.C., the Jews were in captivity in the nation of Babylon, and Isaiah is prophesying about Babylon, that nation led by Nebuchadnezzar, and then his sons, Belshazzar, etc. So if we, or grandsons anyway, so if we go on here, let's see what the oracle is. Verse 9. Let's, I'll skip some of it, but go to verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now, here's prophetic perspective for Isaiah. He's comparing the judgment happening to Babylon to the day of the Lord, the great end times judgment. He's smashing those two things together. Everybody agrees with that. But look what he goes on to say about the judgment of Babylon. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now look at verse 17, just in case you aren't sure I'm talking about the destruction of Babylon. Verse 17, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. This is talking about the Medo-Persian army led by Darius and Cyrus, who may or may not be the same character in history, but led by Darius slash Cyrus who come in and conquer Babylon. And so Isaiah talks about the destruction of Babylon as the stars of the heavens and their constellations not given their light. The sun will not be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Sounds like very familiar language, doesn't it? Now go to Ezekiel chapter 32. Ezekiel chapter 32. I want to show you this same kind of language with reference specifically to Egypt and its destruction. Ezekiel 32. And look at verse 1 again so we can establish the context of who is being judged here. In the twelfth year, the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. That's the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him. Now he's going to go on. You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you were like a dragon in the seas. And he goes on to describe Egypt. Go down to verse 7. When I blot you out, Egypt, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. So when God brought other nations to conquer Egypt and to conquer Babylon, this same kind of language of cataclysmic events in the cosmos is used. That's simply an apocalyptic way of speaking. We have similar figures of speech, don't we? The sky is falling. Is that a figure of speech that the world's coming, that everything's going wrong? The sky is, you guys heard that before? I... There you go, right? <laughs> but this particular language of darkness, why is it darkness? Why is everything going dark? It's tied to judgment. What does it mean to walk with Christ? It means to be saved from the kingdom of what? Darkness. And to be brought into the kingdom of light. Darkness is often indicative of judgment. 
So when judgment is coming against this local nation, Babylon, or this localized nation, Egypt, there's darkness in the, in the cosmos because judgment has arrived. That's also why we see darkness in the judgment at the end. That's why the Lamb at the end is our light. Because we're taken from the kingdom of darkness and rescued into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of light. Think think of the death of Christ. The death of Christ, if you read the Gospels, um, occurs between about noon and 3 p.m. on Saturday. It says between the 6th and the 9th hour. On a Friday, sorry. On a Friday. Between noon and 3 p.m. on a Friday. What happens at noon, are we told, in the Gospels as God's wrath is being poured out on Christ in judgment? What happens? We are told that around noon, darkness was over all the land until 3 p.m. when the crucifixion ended. Why? It's not just incidental. They just like to throw it in. By the way, it was dark that day. Why? Why was darkness over all the land for the three hours that Christ was on the cross? Jesus is being crucified And God's wrath or God's judgment for our sin was being poured out upon him. So keeping that in mind, it's perfectly biblical to see these cosmic events in Luke 21, 25 through 26 as being apocalyptic language of the localized judgment coming against Israel, which is being discussed in the verses just before. That wouldn't be an abnormal way to speak as a prophet. So now look at verse of Luke 21, verse 27, because this is where we really start to go, and our minds start to just kind of go, right, all right? Look at verse 27. And, w- and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, how can that be anything other than the second coming of Christ? It's a really good question. Let's consider where the language comes from and how it's used elsewhere. First, we know that through the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, is always in the clouds, isn't he? It's a cloud of pillar and fire. You hear the, the idea of him coming with the clouds over and over again. So clearly, minimally, this is speaking of Jesus' divinity. For Jesus to say of himself that he's the Son of Man coming with the clouds would have been a very clear picture to the Jews of what Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. Second, scholars agree that this text in verse 27 is referencing Daniel 7. 13 through 14, and Psalm 110. So we need to look at those. So look at Daniel 7, 13, verse 13. This is the one that sort of blew my mind as I was studying in part. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Here's Daniel having a vision of the future. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now that's clearly got to be what Jesus is referencing, right? There's not even any dispute about that. There came one like a son of man, and he came, now notice this, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now where does this son of man come with the clouds? Does he come with the clouds to earth? Or does he come with the clouds to heaven? In Daniel 7.13, he came where? To the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. For what? Look at verse 14. Why is he presented before the Father? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why is he coming with the clouds to the Father 
to be coronated as king. To be coronated as king. So it seems Daniel 7 is referencing the ascension of Jesus to be coronated as king. Now, because I said Luke 21, 27 also smashes in Psalm 110, we need to look there as well, Psalm 110. So you're going to go back further in the Old Testament um, toward Genesis, more toward Genesis, about right in the middle. Look at Psalm 110. Jesus, and this psalm, by the way, is referenced by Jesus of himself more than once in the Gospels. It's also referenced by Peter with regard to Jesus in Acts 2. But the Lord, it's a psalm of David, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, that's Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is talking about the ascension and the coronation of Jesus as king. He is the Davidic king who sits next to the Father, ruling and reigning. Now look what it goes on to say in verse 6, just so you can see that it's talking in part about his judgment. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So he does come in judgment. So when we consider what Jesus is doing with these two texts, it seems he could be saying that he'll ascend to the right hand of God, be coronated king, and as the divine and Davidic king, the Danielic son of man, he will come with the clouds to judge. Could he be saying to the disciples, I'm the Danielic son of man, I'm the Davidic king, I will ascend to my father's right hand where I will be coronated king and from where I will judge Israel for her sin of rejecting me. And when you see this destruction of Jerusalem and this temple with all these cosmic signs of judgment, then know that I am the king sitting on my throne and keeping my word, keeping my promise that Israel would be judged for her rejection of me. Now, lest you think I'm pushing this use of Daniel 7 too far, look to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, because Jesus speaks of himself this way. He could be saying more in Luke 21 about the future, but he definitely isn't saying less than what I'm talking about here. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is on trial, and he's brought before the high priest, Caiaphas. This is the last week of his life, and as he's brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, he's being tried by them. In this very powerful scene that you may be familiar with, look at verse 59. Now the chief priests of Matthew 26, verse 59 Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. There he was talking about his body. We have that reference in the Gospel of John. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, now catch this, I tell you, catch this next phrase, from Now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Isn't that a stunning statement? He's looking at the high priest saying, from now on, this is present tense, from now on, you're going to see this. You will see has got a mild future tense about it, but the rest of the verbs there are in the present tense. You're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory from now on. Why? Why? Why does he say that? Because he's about to be crucified and resurrected and ascend, ascending to the right hand of the Father to be coronated King of kings and Lord of lords. And the high priest knew what Jesus meant. 
which is why we read what we do in verse 65. Look there. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? See what's happening here? Jesus is saying, I'm the one Daniel talked about. I'm the one David talked about in Psalm 110. And from now on, you will see me reigning over all. I am the Lord. Minimally, he's saying that. The third argument for why this is in the past, look at Luke 21. Luke 21 and verse 28, and we'll read from there through verse 32. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Interesting that he is speaking to the disciples that your heads, your redemption, is in the second person plural, and that you is not you in the pew. That's you, the disciples he's talking to. Now go on to verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Some people get all hung up on this. The fig tree, that's Israel. But the problem is, and all the trees. Okay, it's just a metaphor here. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, You know, look at you, you, you. Who's that? The disciples. When you see these, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, disciples, this generation will not pass away. The generation you live in will not pass away until all this, until all has taken place. That seems to most naturally be read as a reference to everything that's preceding what's just been said. Fourth and finally, partial preterists also argue that Jesus does speak of his return in Matthew 24 and that the whole nature of what he says in Matthew 24 is different. So keep your hand in Luke 21 and go to Matthew 24 again, final time there. And you'll be interested in this because there's a new Left Behind movie coming out. Is it out already? There you go. Starring Nicolas Cage, which means it'll be really good. Okay. All right. Look, look at Matthew twenty four thirty six. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. It's interesting because up till here he's been saying those days, those days, those days. And then suddenly in verse 36 he changes to concerning that day and hour. Up till now, he's been saying, hey, listen, there's going to be all these signs. You're going to see this. You're going to see that. You're going to see the temple destroyed. You're going to see all these things in those days, in those days, in those days. But of that day and hour, no one knows. It's like suddenly he changed from talking about one thing to another. And the question scholars ask is, is he now answering the question of the disciples? First answering the question, when are all these things going to take place? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And now with prophetic perspective, he says, now let me answer your second question. When will I return? Let me answer that now concerning that day and hour. He's just changed the subject from those days to that day. It's fairly compelling evidence. All the scholars argue that up through verse 35, Jesus is answering the question about the destruction of the temple. And at verse 36... He begins talking about his return, all these partial preterist scholars. That's where they say the return is now being talked about. Further, it's important to know that Jesus, rather than giving signs of his coming, he says this, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. It's interesting if he spent the last 30 verses nearly, explaining to them all that he knows about his coming to then turn and say, but of my coming, nobody knows. I don't know. 
Then he goes on and says, 4, verse 37. Now look at the nature of this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah like? Read on. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. Notice that? All is well on the earth. They're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah enters the ark. They had no idea any trouble was coming. Noah had told them. They didn't believe him. They looked around and said, look at how well everything is, Noah. Not, look at how the world is falling apart. It must be the end. Here it is. Look, it's going to, my day, my return, Jesus says, is going to be like those days of Noah. Where everyone's, you're out there preaching. It's coming. It's coming. And everybody's saying, everything seems good. Not, you're right, man. Look at how jacked up the world is. It's almost over. They're going to be partying, marrying, giving in marriage, eating and drinking. Verse 39, and they were unaware. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. By the way, as a side bonus option here, read that passage slowly. The people left behind are in good shape. The people taken are in bad shape. The people taken are like those swept away in Noah's flood. So maybe we should change that whole movie from left behind. You know, anyway. Okay, so you're going. Bad title. All right. So who's right? Who's right? Is this passage in Luke 21, 25 through 28 about the second coming and the return of Christ, or is it about the judgment of Israel? A judgment of a nation which gives us a picture of what judgment for the whole world will look like when Christ does return. What's it about? I lean toward this being about the judgment of Israel or the partial preterist view. At least I lean toward that this week. Do you follow me? But I may change my view, and you certainly wouldn't get much pushback from me if you disagree with me. I'm okay with being disagreed with on this point. You might actually convince me I'm wrong, because I have lots of reasons I think I'm wrong too. And I know you're likely disappointed that I'm so uncertain, but the reality is this is a difficult text. The Bible's clear, but not all texts of the Bible are equally clear. And with that said, then, what difference does all this make? In other words, if this text is debatable, what use is it to us? What's the point of this text when both views could be embraced by equally solid evangelical scholars? Well, the central truth which just bleeds through here and which is without dispute, is that Jesus is the king who will judge the living and the dead, and as such, his words are always true, always sure, always eternal. That was redundant on purpose. Let's finish by looking at 21.33, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. Notice what a stunning statement that is. If that's not a claim to divinity, I don't know what is. Heaven and earth will pass away. All of creation will come to an end. But my words, Jesus says of his own words, they'll never pass away. I couldn't possibly exhaust all the implications of this one verse in my life. But I want to bring you to three really quick implications. First, if you are not trusting in Jesus, then please know that your sin has separated you from God. Jesus came to save you, but he will return as your judge. Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day for your justification. And Jesus said, 
I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through me. And he also said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Which means that when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through me, it means that's eternally true. You can take it to the bank. So you need to look to him and be saved. Because there's no other way to be saved. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. So I implore you, if you're not a believer, to look to him and be saved. Second, if you are a believer, we need to remember that we are subjects of the King of Kings. Which means we can trust his commands and his promises because the King of Kings' promises and commands are never going to end. See, we can rejoice in every one of them because as the eternal divine king of all, his words are eternal. The whole creation will come unraveled, but his words will never fail. So if you wonder, should I be a sender or a goer with regard to the Great Commission so that Jesus is made known to all nations, just remind yourself that Jesus said you should be and his words will never pass away. If you wonder if you can, can trust God's word to forgive your sins... Trust God's word to never leave you nor forsake you, to be your righteousness and sanctification, to bring you before the Father and share his inheritance with you. Remember what Jesus said. He said all that stuff, and he also said, my words will never pass away. Christian, if all creation and all your sin and Satan's entire demonic army testify against you and accuse you, and harass you about your unworthiness and your certain damnation. You only need to speak the truth back to them. That you're right, I'm unworthy. And you're right, I deserve damnation. But I know my Redeemer lives. His name is Jesus. He's my Savior King. He is on the throne. He has promised to save me. And the whole of creation and Satan and my sin will all pass away, but the words of Jesus will endure forever. Finally, congregation, if your king is on the throne, if your king is on the throne and this book is his word, then you should not tolerate your pastor as attending to anything but the word of your king. God's word is never failing, always effective, sharper than any two-edged sword cutting straight to the heart, and God's word is what you need to hear. So if we wander off to other priorities and programs and gimmicks, then I ask you to throw us out. Find men who will attend to his word. He is our king and this is his word. May we attend to what our king says. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would hear the word of the Lord and know that we can trust you and your promises, that you are good, that you are true, that what you did on the cross pays for all of our sin. That your resurrection is the promise of our life and justification. That your ascension to the right hand and present rule and reign is our great hope and assurance that what our King says is true and will endure forever. I pray for the people here who don't know you, that they would turn to you in faith and believe. I pray for those who do know you, that we also likewise would rejoice in your Son, knowing that he has made promises to us. And he has told us that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away, which means his promises are sure. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.